0: Well, hey everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. And right now at Melbourne Heights, we are in the middle of a sermon series called Faith, Hope, and Love. And we're talking about how these three things define us as followers of Jesus. So during our last sermon, we spent our time talking together about what it means for us to be defined by our faith. And in our next episode, we'll be talking about what it means for us to be defined by our love. But in this week's episode, we're talking about what it means for us to be defined by our hope. And we're going to see how a rainbow, a dove, a pillar of fire, and a sandal can show us what it means to be defined by hope. So let's get right into this episode sermon. So I want to begin our time together today by playing
1: a little game with you. And here's how that game's going to work. In just a minute, we're going to put some pictures up on the screen that represent different Bible stories. And I want you to try to guess the biblical story that each of these pictures represent. If you're worshiping with us online on Facebook, you can type your reply in the comments thread. If you're joining us here in person, you can just shout it out when you think you know the answer. Alright? Make sense? Alright, so we're going to start with an easy one. Alright? So let's go ahead and put the first picture up. This is a picture of a rainbow. What biblical story does a rainbow represent? Very good. It represents Noah's Ark. And in the story of Noah's Ark, humanity has become so evil that God decides to cover the entire surface of the earth with a flood. And as the story comes to an end, God promises that he will never destroy the entire earth with a flood again. And he gives us a rainbow as a sign of his promise to never do that. So that's our first picture. Now we'll move on. We'll go ahead and put our second picture up on the screen. This is a picture of a dove. Now I'll go ahead and warn you that the word dove is used about 40 times inside of the Bible. So when you see a picture of a dove, there might be at least a couple of different biblical stories that come to your mind. But the specific story that I'm thinking about today is the story where the word dove appears more than any other story in the Bible. So do you know which biblical story a dove represents? Alright. Got a couple guesses of Jesus' baptism with the dove descending down, but it's actually Noah's Ark again. Inside the story of Noah's Ark, as the flood water starts to recede, Noah sends out at least three different doves in order to see if it's safe for him and his family to exit the Ark. I promise, the next one's not going to be a trick question. We're moving past Noah's heart with it. So we've got another picture we're going to put up on the screen. We'll go ahead and do that now. This is a picture of a pillar of fire. So, which biblical story is represented by a pillar of fire? That's right. Pillar of fire comes from the exodus. The people of Israel are fleeing from Egypt after being enslaved there for 400 years. And God gives them this pillar of fire to direct the people of Israel as they are traveling away from Egypt and they're headed back toward the promised land. We've got one more picture that we're going to show you, but before we get to that picture this morning, I want to take a minute and I want to talk about what all of these different images have in common. And believe it or not, all of these images the picture of a rainbow and a dove and a pillar of fire and the one that we'll show you is. Minutes, They all have something in common, aside from just representing different biblical stories. So what do all of these images have in common? Well, they are all symbols of hope. They are all symbols of hope. The rainbow, the dove, the pillar of fire, they all symbolize hope. But hope is one of those words that we use all the time in our culture today. But it's also one of those words that we never really stop and try to define. So we need to spend a little bit of time talking about what hope actually means. And if you were to ask a lot of people, you would find that plenty of people would tell you that hope is simply being optimistic about the future. Or other people would tell you that hope is feeling that tomorrow is going to be better than today without having any specific reason why. But that's not what we mean in the church when we talk about hope. So how do we inside of the church define hope? What do we mean when we are talking? about hope. Well, for us as Christians, hope is the anticipation that God will fulfill God's promises for us and for the world. Hope is the anticipation that God will fulfill God's promises for us and for our world. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about hope inside of the church, the anticipation that God will fulfill God's promises for us and for our world. But hope isn't just a word that we use that we need to define inside of church. Hope is also something that defines each of us as followers of Jesus. Remember, we started talking about this just last Sunday. We started talking about what defines all of us as Christians, what makes us who we are, what qualities, what characteristics set us apart. And as we started into this last week, we heard from the Apostle Paul, who's the foremost missionary and theologian of the first century. And Paul tells us that there are three characteristics, three traits, that define all of us as followers of Jesus. And he shares about this in a letter that he writes to followers of Jesus living in the ancient city of Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, Paul says, and these three were remain faith, hope, Love, but the greatest of these is love. So, as followers of Jesus, we are defined by our faith, by our hope, and by our love. So, we spent our time together last Sunday talking about what it means for us to be defined by our faith, and we're going to spend our time together next Sunday talking about what it means for us to be defined by our love. And we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning talking about what it means for us to be defined by. So, what does it mean for us to be defined by hope? Well, that brings me back to that last picture that I promised you we were going to show you a little later on in the sermon. But before we put this picture up on the screen, I want to go ahead and let you know that this isn't the kind of picture that you have probably ever thought of as a symbol of hope before. So, David, let's go ahead and put that last picture up on the screen. This is a picture of a sandwich. And it's not just any sandal. This is a beat-up, dirty, worn-out, old sandal. So how is a sandal a symbol of hope? Well, let me tell you that story this morning. And as this particular story begins, there was a very difficult harvest season that was underway. The summer leading up to this harvest season had been especially hot and dry, and many of the crops that were planted didn't survive that hot, dry summer. So when all of the harvest was brought in, there wasn't enough food to feed all of the people living in one small town, let alone feed all of their animals. So this small town went into a severe time of famine. And as we are all well aware, drastic times often call for drastic measures. So there were plenty of families that were living in this small town who decided it was time to pack up their bags and quite literally go looking for greener pastures. A man named Elimelech, who we're going to call Eli for short, because Eli's way easier to say than Elimelech, uh, and his family, his beautiful wife Naomi and his two teenage sons are amongst these families that pack their bags and leave this small town. So their family, when Eli's family packs their bags, they start heading north even though they have no idea exactly where they're going, they eventually find another nice small town where they're able to settle in and start planting their roots again. They find a nice little town where they're able to buy a nice little farm and start living their lives like normal again without having to wonder if they're going to have food to put on the table. And at that point, it seems like Eli and his family are on the road to having a nice, normal life. But not too long after they move into this new town, after they settle in and buy this farmland, tragedy strikes this family again. When Eli is out working in the fields, he has a massive heart attack and dies, leaving his two sons not only to be in charge of the new family farm, but also to be in charge of the family's livelihood. Well, a little bit surprising two teenage boys, they actually flourished with all of this extra pressure in their lives. They had learned so much from their dad over the years that they really took to farming and everything was going great. After they had been in this new town for a few years, their farm was completely thriving, and they continued to, to continue to settle in and plant their roots. Soon, they met a couple of nice local girls. They got married, and again, it looked like everything was going the right way for this family. This is the point where it seemed like they were going to have their happily ever after. But unfortunately, the only stories where people seem to all live happily ever after are fairy tales, and this is a fairy. Not too long after those boys had gotten married, tragedy struck on the farm again. There was a major accident and both of the sons were killed. Tragedy struck this family, leaving a mother who had moved from her own hometown up into this new area, widowless with and without a child. Now, if this were the script to a movie, this is the point in the movie where the mother and her daughters in law would come together and decide that they were going to save the family farm. And there would undoubtedly be some hilarious moments along the way as the women struggled to figure out how to milk a cow or if they couldn't manage to get the tractor into gear. And undoubtedly there would be some evil banker out there lurking in the shadows who was always threatening to foreclose on the family's property. But somehow, way, the women would manage to get everything together, and not only would they save the farm, they'd also create a worldwide farming empire out of it. But this isn't the script of a Hollywood movie, so this story doesn't have a Hollywood ending. The simple truth is that these three women lived during a day and age where they were not allowed to inherit the estate from their husbands. They lived in a time when women were considered to be little more than property. So in spite of all of the effort that Naomi's sons and her husband had put into building this bar, all of it would be left to the closest living male relative. And Naomi, in spite of all of the tragedy, during one tragedy after another, was left with nothing. After her husband and her two sons died, Naomi was left without any. She didn't have a male relative that was living close by that could help her out. She didn't have a job that she could fall back on. She didn't have any money that was coming her way from her inheritance. She couldn't even afford to put food on the table. So at this point, in the story Naomi makes the only decision that she can possibly make. She decides it's time for her to pack her bags and move back to her hometown, a place that she had left years earlier with her husband and her two sons on the famine struck well, Naomi's two daughters-in-law. They were extremely loyal to their mother-in-law, and they both offered to move back to Naomi's hometown with her. But Naomi was having it. She knew how difficult life was going to be for her when she made it back home. She knew that there wasn't any job that was waiting there for her. She knew that she wasn't going to be able to, to scrape together the she had no idea she even had family that was still living in this town that could help her along the way. So they only talked to her two daughters-in-law. She told them, just because my life is hopeless, it doesn't mean that your life has to be hopeless, too. So why don't both of you go back and move back in with your parents? You're still young. You've got plenty of time ahead of you. You still have time to meet someone else, to fall in love all over again, to get married, to start a family of your own. Just because my story's not going to have a happy ending doesn't mean that your story won't. Well, one of the daughters-in-law decided to listen to her mother-in-law's advice. She went and she moved back in with her parents to try to have her happily ever after. But the other daughter-in-law remained loyal to Naomi because now she knew that she really was the only person that Naomi had left in her life. To these two women. They packed up all of their eager possessions, and they headed back to Naomi's hometown. When they arrived there, they realized just how difficult life was going to be for them. They managed to find a small little place that kept them safe and put a roof over their heads, but they still couldn't find any work. They still couldn't put any food on the table. Now, this doesn't exactly sound like a story about hope, does it? I mean, in this story, absolutely nothing is going right for Naomi and for her daughter-in-law. Every person that they have ever loved has either died or left them behind. And now they find themselves in a situation where they barely have a roof over their head. They don't have any job lined up. They can't put any food on the table. So why is this a story of hope? Let's listen to the rest of the story. Well, I told you a minute ago that when Naomi and her daughter-in-law arrived in Naomi's hometown, that they were struggling to find work, and that's because they didn't live in a day and age where women were readily welcomed into the workforce. So instead of women being able to go out and get jobs, they didn't live in a day and an age where women were allowed to go out into the fields during the harvest season and pick up any grain that was left laying on the field after the harvest was taken in that allowed anyone to be able to make sure that they had enough food to survive. But at this point in the story, Naomi is too old to be able to go out and work the fields for herself, so her daughter-in-law has to go out and gather enough grain every day for both of them. But fortunately, along the way, Naomi does learn that she still has at least a few distant relatives that are continuing to live in this town. So she sends her daughter-in-law to go out and work in one of her relatives' fields. She arrives early in the day. She spends the entire day following behind the workers as they're gathering the harvest and leaving a little bit of grain on the ground. And she scoops up all of the grain that she can find. And eventually she finds enough to make sure that her and her mother-in-law will be fed for that day. Well, the day starts to wind it down. The owner of the land, the distant relative, a guy named Boaz, that we're going to call Bo for short, arrives to see how the day's labor had gone. When he gets there, he sees this woman out bending over, stooped down, picking up all the grain that is left lying in the dirt. And he asks his workers who this woman is. The workers tell him that she is Naomi's daughter-in-law. And immediately Bo goes to talk with this daughter-in-law because he's already heard all about her. He knows that she has been loyal to his family, and he wants to reward her for her loyalty. So Bo goes and he talks to his daughter-in-law and he says, I know what you've done for Naomi. I know that you've stuck with her. I know that you're helping her out. I know that you're making sure that there is food on the table for her. So I'm going to do something for you. I want to tell you to only come and work in my field." If you'll come and only work in my fields, I will make sure that there's always enough food for you, and also make sure that you stay safe. Well, that day when Naomi's daughter-in-law left the field, she had her arms filled with grain, and she immediately goes back home, and she starts telling her mother-in-law about everything that had happened. Well, at this point, Naomi comes clean, and she tells her daughter-in-law exactly who Bo is she says that Bo is actually second in line to inherit her husband's estate. And as mothers are one to do, she also happens to mention that Bo is single. Well, Naomi's daughter-in-law, she decides to Bo up on his offer and she continues to go out in his field day after day gathering enough grain to make sure that her and Naomi are both fed. And Bo continues to keep his promise, making sure that she is safe and that she has enough food every day when she leaves. And along the way, day after day it becomes crystal clear to everyone in the small town that Naomi's daughter-in-law is becoming quite smitten with Bo. So One day she goes back home, and he only sits her down, and she says, listen, you need to go to Bo, and you need to tell him exactly how you feel about him. Well, eventually the daughter-in-law, she works up the nerve to go and talk with Bo and tell him exactly how she feels, she pours her heart out to him. And Bo speaks up and says he feels the exact same way about her. He has loved her from the moment that he saw her. Now again, if this were a movie, we would expect the wedding bells to kick in, and this happy couple would go off riding into the sunset to live happily ever after. But there was one major problem that kept that from being able to happen, and that's that Beau wasn't allowed to marry this woman. Remember what I told you earlier in the sermon. This story takes place in a day and age when women were treated as little more than property. So Bo may have been second in line to inherit the estate, but that meant there was one person in front of him who was in line to inherit the entire estate, and that included his daughter-in-law. So Bo goes and he talks with this other man, the first in line to inherit Eli's estate, and he tells them everything that's happening. He says, listen, you know about our relative Eli and his sons that left town and they started a great farm? Well, they both died, and now you are first in line to inherit that estate. This other man jumps in and he says, of course I would love to inherit that estate. I've heard about the work that Eli and his sons did there. I've heard about how great a farm they built up. I would be a fool to pass it up. But this other man was completely unaware of this daughter-in-law. And in this day and age, when a man had the right to inherit an estate that was left by a deceased relative, that man also had the obligation to marry any widow that was left behind. And as the laws were written in this time, if this man who inherited the estate was able to have a child with the widow that was a male heir, that male heir became the son of the first husband, and then that son would stand to inherit everything that the first husband would have passed down. Well, this man realized just how complicated that made things for everyone, including him. He had a family of his own. He didn't want to have to worry about how his estate would eventually be split up by his future heirs. So he decided to pass on the whole situation. And that's when he told Bo. He said, if that's the case, I waive my claims to the estate. You're second in line. You can take it from here. But that wasn't quite as you can imagine, for a transaction that was this big of a deal, there were certain stipulations and legal things that needed to be done. This man, the first in line to inherit Eli's estate, needed to do something for Bo to show that he had waived his claim. Now, in this day and age, what that would look like would be some giant legal contract that was filled with all sorts of signatures it required somebody to notarize it and had multiple carbon copies of the whole thing. But that wasn't the way that it was when this story takes place this story takes place, this man was required to give Bo something very specific and very strange to show that he had waived his claim to the estate. Do you want to guess what this man had to give Bo to show that he waived his claim to Eli's estate? He had to give him that dirty, nasty, beat-up sandal. He had to give him a sandal off of his own foot to show that he waived his claim this inheritance. And this is how the rest of that story plays out after this man waves his claim to Eli's estate. We read the story in Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Here's what it says. So Boaz took Ruth, that's the daughter-in-law, and she became his wife. He was intimate with her. The Lord let her become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son women said to Naomi, May the Lord be blessed to today. hasn't left you without a Redeemer. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. He will restore your life and sustain you in your old age. Your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth to him. She's better for you than seven sons. Naomi took the child and held him to her breast, and she became his guardian. Throughout the story of Ruth, Boaz, there are plenty of times when tragedy strikes. Throughout this story, there are plenty of times when things seem like they are spiraling completely out of control. Throughout this story, there are plenty of times where it doesn't seem like Ruth or Naomi or Boaz have any way to keep moving forward. Throughout this story, there are plenty of times when it was hard for these people to hope. You know what? We have all experienced plenty of times in our lives when tragedy is struck. We have all had times in our lives where it felt like things were spiraling completely out of our control. We've all had plenty of times in our lives when it felt like there was no way forward. We've all had times when it was hard to hope. We've all had times when it's hard to hope. But this story, the story of Ruth. Elmi and Boaz reminds us that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, no matter how difficult life may seem, no matter how hard the road ahead may be, that there is always hope. There is always hope. But we have to remember what real hope is. It's like I told you earlier in this morning's sermon. Hope is the anticipation. God will fulfill God's promises for us and for our world. And God gives us so many great promises. God promises us that a time will come when there will be no more tragedies. God promises us a time will come when there will be no more death. God promises us a time will come when there will be no more tears. God promises us a time will come when no one will be hungry again. God promises us a time will come when when no one will be left alone. God promises us a time will come when every human being will be treated with the respect and dignity that they deserve. And in the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, God keeps his promises. And if God kept his promises for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, then God will keep his promises for us as well. This is what it means for us to be defined by hope. It means that no matter what the world may bring, we will cling to God's promises. No matter what the world may bring, we will cling to God's promises. We will cling to the promises, the tragedies will end, that there will be no more death or crying, that there will be a time when no one goes hungry, when no one is left alone, there will be a time when everyone will be treated with honor, with dignity. with respect, we will cling to these promises because we know that God always fulfills his promises. So as people of faith, what it looks like for us to be defined by hope is that we continue to anticipate that God will keep his promises no matter what, no matter what you're facing in life right now know that God will keep his promises. No matter how difficult the road ahead may seem for you right now, know that God will keep his promises. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, know and anticipate that God will keep his promises for you. This is the kind of hope that defines us as followers of Jesus. The question, Is this the hope that defines you? Let's pray together, God. As we come to you in this time of prayer, we are so thankful for the story of Ruth and and Naomi and Boaz. God, throughout the story, everything seemed to go wrong for these people. Nothing seemed to go right. But in spite of all of the tragedies they endured, in spite of all of the suffering they faced, in spite of all of the difficulties. And to make it through. God, they continue to anticipate that you would fulfill the promises you make us all. They continued to hope. God, as your followers, we are defined by our hope. Now, being defined by hope doesn't mean that our lives are always perfect. It doesn't mean that our lives are always easy. It doesn't mean that our lives are all puppy dogs and sunshine all the time. But it does mean that we anticipate Always keep your promises, no matter what we're going through. So, God, let us place our hope in you, and let us be defined by this faith. We pray it all in Jesus' name, Amen.
0: Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that this episode has helped you know what it means for you to be defined by hope. And I hope that it's challenged you to really reflect on if that kind of hope defines you. Well, in our next episode, we're going to be talking about what it means for us to be defined by our love. So we hope that you'll come back and join us when our next episode drops next Tuesday morning. As always, if you subscribe to our podcast, that episode will be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And you don't have to wait till next Tuesday to join us for worship. You're invited to come and join us online any Sunday that you'd like at 1030 a.m. Eastern Time, at com slash live. We would love to have you come and join us. Well, until next time, I hope that you guys have a great week. I will be praying for you, and we'll see you back here soon for another sermon podcast.